First, let me recap a little bit. We read from verse one all the way down to verse 11. And it said this, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That was the big one, right? The, he starts out the passage with, we are at peace with God. And we discussed what that was about. Later on there in verse, in verse uh, number three, he says, uh, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that sufferings produce perseverance and perseverance produces character and character hope and through hope, uh, hope is not put to shame. Uh, this idea that uh, we, are, we, are, we feel a tense pressure that comes on us and we can actually speak to the culture and, the, and maybe the time frame that we live in right now that sometimes there's pressure that's put on us and we can boast in that pressure because we know the outcome. Right, Paul was talking to an excursion molding and he was saying, listen, it's kind of like that little ribbon that comes out after you squeeze your toothpaste. It comes out in a sphere or kind of a circular pattern because the end of it is a circle. But just like Plato, if you change the end of it to a star, then it comes out as something is pushed through it in the image of a star. And he was saying that our image, the cap that's on our life that we are pushed and squeezed through should look like Jesus. And that when we look like Jesus, when we resemble Jesus, that our hope does not disappoint. Then we read on last week in my favorite verse of the entire Bible, it says, but God demonstrated his love towards us in this while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That Jesus decided to show his love for us, that God decided to show his unadulterated love for us, that he sticks to us like glue with this fabric of his love by the fact that when we were still sinning, when we were active in our sin, when we were actively walking away from God, when we were doing things that were totally outside the will and character of God, he still sent his son to die for us. And if you have the chance, maybe you could review that message uh, over, over time. It's on Facebook or it's in our podcast. And then later on, we read in verse 10, for if while we were enemies, God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? That Jesus was the catalyst Jesus was the open door that we walk through to recognize this new life that we have in Christ. As we talked about the last couple of weeks that Paul is creating a narrative. He's, he's sketching out a picture. And in this picture, he's starting out with a little bud. It's a rosebud of sorts. And it starts to bloom and blossom as we read through the rest of the verses. And verse 12 through 21, it really starts to show its full effect we're gonna read through some of these scriptures today uh, all the way through verse 17. And it, and it starts to blossom and show the context and the full narrative in which Paul is trying to speak to. Anytime you read something that, that's written by Paul, uh, for those of you Bible nerds out there, it's called Pauline literature or Pauline text. So Romans chapter five is considered Pauline literature. Because of that, there's a history and a context behind it. As we talked about in our, our opening uh, introduction to the book of Romans, in Romans chapter five specifically, this was written under the rule of Nero where he started to persecute Christians. This was written mostly to a group of people that were converting Jews. And some of these Jews were in Rome, the, the major city of the world at the time. They were in Rome because some of them were descendants of slaves that had been brought in there by force. And some of them were there just because they decided to go back to Rome. It was the hubbub, it was the big city and to live in the big city. And Paul was preaching to these folks who were under the, the worship practices of second temple Judaism. Now, this is a new idea. 
introducing this today for a reason. Second Temple Judaism lasted between 515 BC all the way to 70 AD. The Second Temple is a temple that was first built by Nehemiah. The first temple had gone into ruin. This is the second temple built by Nehemiah. And then later on, it was rebuilt by Herod the Great under Roman rule. So the Romans said the Jews have a way of practicing their religion. And we're going to honor that even to the slaves that were Jews under Roman rule. We're gonna honor that with the rebuilding of their temple, this second temple. And because of that, there was a religious rite and a religious passage and religious rules that were kept by the Jewish people. And then we come to this concept that, that Paul moves in this, in this arena of religious right, religious rule and covenant and all this talk of covenant and how to enact the covenant. We'll go through some of that today. And he talks of the main point, the main point of the main point in all of Romans that God cut a covenant between God and Israel. And this covenant was established in the first place in order to deal with the problems of the world as a whole. That Jesus knew, God knew that there needed to be a way to deal with the problems of this world. That he set this world into motion. And as it started to spin on its axis, it created problems. It created problems even from the initial onset of humanity coming to life when he carved Adam out of the dust of the ground and he pulled woman out of the rib of Adam. And these first humans were given their first opportunity to sin against God, they, they took the bait. And from that point, God was in need of a rescue plan. This covenant was established so that the creator, God could rescue us, could rescue all of creation. You do understand that God is in the business of rescuing all of creation. I don't, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to say something political, but it might sound that way. Our, our world matters. The world we live in matters. The planet we live on matters. It matters because God is rescuing the whole thing. God isn't just, when it says all of creation, when you read John 3, 16, for God to love the world, that is the word cosmos. In the Greek, God loves the whole world, the whole thing that he created. He created you, he created me, he created this whole ball of wax. We are the crown jewel of creation, but God still cares for all of creation. And in order to remedy the effects of sin, to, to make the world right, to set the world right, he does it first through us. But when he sets the world to right, he is setting to right the total of creation. And he is trying to deal with the evils of creation, the corruption that is spread into creation to you and I into this world and to the, the, the disintegration even of our world. He is trying in a very particular way to rescue humans from sin and death. Now, this world we know will ultimately dissipate, disappear, and be gone and be done with. But we as, as spiritual beings will live on in forever. And that God created and established this covenant to deal with the evil that is here in this world, to combat the evils of this world, the negativities that we feel, the brokenness in relationships that we feel, the evils that are perpetrated from one person to another, that this covenant was set, that was cut between God and Israel, ultimately between God and us, that this covenant was cut so that he could deal with evil, that he could deal with corruption, those things that are of corrupt nature, that they would be brought back into God's original purpose. The corruption on every level would be subject to the will and to the purposes of Jesus. And the disintegration, the things that start to break down the life that breaks down, the life that we're supposed to live, the life that God intends us to live, that it doesn't break down any further, that we have a full-on understanding of the grace, the purpose, and the power of God in our everyday life. That sets the stage for where we're going 
for this next portion of Romans chapter five. We're gonna hit the middle part or the, the introduction to the ratifying of a covenant. A covenant is just a contract, a contract cut between at some points even man and God and how that works out. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter five and verse 12 says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, so also death was passed on to all men because all sin, now we're gonna stop there. We have heard a long time, for a long time coming, that this idea that all have sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even here, all sin, we take this to this concept that we as human persons are just frail and we fail to live up to the intention of God and therefore we sin. This scripture actually gives a pattern on how this happens. And it says, just as sin entered the world through one man, through Adam, through Adam's sin entered. It entered the world and death because of that sin. But so also death was then passed on to all of us because we've all sinned. Now we could chalk that up and say, well, God was just saying that the total of human, the total of, of humanity, the total of human history is sinful. Therefore sin is a given. But that's not really what he's saying. Again, think of first temple Jews and how they would have interpreted this or second temple Jews, I'm sorry, and how they would have interpreted this. Think of the Jewish nature and, and, and the, the Jewish uh, religion and all of the facets on how they practice their religion, all of the testament of the rabbis and their searching and studying of the scriptures. God was very much saying through Paul that all of you who have been given access to the covenant have sinned. This isn't a slight against our Jewish brothers and sisters. We understand that even the rabbis have testified to the idea that, that Jewish people were given the covenant of God to uphold as a standard and they have failed many times over. And Paul was saying that there is a sinful nature that crept in, not because we are just by nature sinful, even though that is true, but because we cannot live up to the standard of the covenant. And he's gonna get into that in just a moment. For sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not taken into account where there is no law. So Paul says this, that, okay, sin entered the world through one man. One man made a mistake. He sided with God's arch enemy. He did more than make a mistake. He decided to go against the actual will of God. And in doing so, sin entered the world. When sin entered the world, ultimately death entered the world. The good nature of God that would have man live on forever. The good nature of God that would give man peace, comfort, tranquility, that would allow them to live in paradise. That was now starting its death spiral. And because sin has entered the world, all have sinned because he has passed on an opportunity for covenant over and over and over. And we have all failed to live up to the nature of the covenant. And then he exemplifies it one more time. And he says, for sin was in the world before the law that even though he had to set a rigorous, a rigorous, rigorous and strict structure, uh, try to say that five times fast. Even though he had to set this structure of, of religious rule and right, that that was only set into motion so that we could be reminded of the sin, so that we could be reminded that we are falling short. This is a harsh, maybe a harsh statement for some of you. Let me explain how this works out in the life of my kids. My kids are always a good illustration of, of sin gone bad, not because they're just sinful little brats, but because their human nature at this age tends to take over. The other day we were sitting around uh, after school and Nash came in and asked if he could have a snack. I said, sure, buddy, go grab a snack out of the pantry. And I hear him fumbling around in the pantry. I walk in and I see him with a handful of beef jerky and a handful of chocolate uh, covered pretzels. 
And he's just trying to, you know, double fist it, throwing these, this food in his mouth. I'm like, man, that's not a snack. That's like a whole meal, dude. How many calories is that? Obviously, he has no idea what calories are. I said, you got to put that away. You can have one piece of each. And he said, well, dad, I'm still hungry. I said, all right, you can have something else, have something small. So he grabs a bowl and he starts to fill it up as much as he can with honey roasted peanuts. I'm like, man, great choice for a snack, but that's also not a snack. Like you got to put some of that back. You can have a few and then we'll have dinner later. And this is what happens in our, in our life, in our covenant connection with God. This is what actually God was, was planning out when he created that religious structure, even that some second temple structure that, you, that the Jews lived by. What he was pointing out was the rules, the guidelines for life. My son had no guidelines until I walked in and said, that's too much, don't do that. Now he was hungry and he was trying to fulfill a need, a real need in his life. And because he was hungry and he needed to pacify the hunger pains, he started to just feed his face. And as a young boy who, who doesn't see even the ramifications of eating too much, he just keeps eating and eating and eating. Now his good and sovereign father came in and said, listen, boy, that's too much, put that back. Now he could disobey me. He could disobey me and there would be consequences. He could disobey me and there would be a sense of sin. He would, he would willfully go against the rule and want of his father. And that's what Paul's lining out here, that there is a, there is a nature within us. There's a, even a sinful drawing within us. And sinful, not because we're bad, not because we're gross to God, not because we're put off to God, but because by nature of our human flesh, we will always want more, consume more, do more, and at times it's appropriate and times it's not. So God puts in these boundaries called the law and it's to reflect back to us when we've gone too far. And he says in verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Even over those who did not sin in the way that Adam transgressed, he is a pattern of the one to come. So Paul's setting up a new narrative. He's setting up a new contract. Paul's starting to set up how this is going to work from this moment forward. So he started off the chapter with the idea that you can be at peace with God, that you can come into God's presence at peace, that you don't have to work for God's peace, that you don't have to struggle for God's peace, but that you can honestly come to God's presence with peace. Again, this was spoken to mostly second temple Jews who were converts. They would have been very used to ritual and religion and religious practice. They would have been very used to cutting covenant and sacrificing animals and all of these things to gain a sense of peace with God. Yet he says in his opener, you're already at peace, blows their mind. And then he moves on to the idea that while you were yet sinners, Christ, the ultimate sacrifice, Christ, the ultimate lamb of God was giving himself over for you. That while you were violently sinning against him, that while you were violently opposing his will, he was giving himself over to you. And we read down in verse 12 and it starts the new contract, the new covenant where he says, listen, sin entered the world. You've already screwed up. You're already on the bad side of this deal, whether you like it or not. And sin entered through one man, but one man is about to take it away. Verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass for the one man of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came through the grace of the one man, Jesus, abound to many. 
that Paul points out this fact that it took one man and one action of defying God and in his defiance to God, he consistently, man, consistently was fell short of the covenant. I'm getting somewhere, I promise. I know I'm giving you some history here. But man consistently fell short of the covenant. And in falling short, they needed a rescue plan. Otherwise, we were always going to be trapped in this idea of the law, that the law would constantly be the rule giver for our life, that the, call, the law would constantly be the metric and we would never live up to the standard. We would always find ourselves falling short. We would always go back to the genesis of sin in life. But Paul says there's a way of escape. He says there was one man who committed a trespass and then you couldn't get out of the pattern of sin on your own. But yet there's another man who's come to give you a free gift of God's grace, Jesus Christ. And it abounds to many, to all that would receive. In verse 16, again, this gift, not like the result of the one man's sin, the judgment that followed one man's sin brought condemnation. But the gift that followed by one man's trespasses brought, uh, that followed I'm sorry, that followed many trespasses brought justification. So we have this idea, he's opening up the, the core language of the covenant and he says, listen, okay, there was sin it entered the world through one man. I'm gonna ratify that. I'm gonna bring one man who's gonna erase sin. And what does he do? He takes away the condemnation and then he offers justification. So this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the meat of the story really happens. This is where the flower starts to unfold. This is why Paul said, you don't have to work at gaining peace with God, you're already at peace. This is why Paul said, even in your most sinful state, Christ was dying for you. He was making a fix for you because he gets to this point and says, you had no conscious choice. You were born into a system that was rigged against you. And whether you wanted to or not, there were already barriers set up and you were going to break those barriers. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, because I know human nature, you are going to break those barriers. And he says this, that there's a rescue and the rescue is in this one person. And in this one person, you will be free from condemnation and you will be justified that you will be free from condemnation and you will be justified. How many of us, when we come to Jesus, can honestly say you don't feel the effects of your past, present, or even future sin because you've given that condemnation over to him? Not that you shouldn't feel remorse, there's a difference. Condemnation says, I'm never gonna be good enough. I'm never gonna make it. I'm never gonna earn my spot. I'm always gonna be low. I'm always gonna be brought, be brought under. Remorse says I shouldn't have done that and I'll make a way to fix it. Condemnation says that the God of the universe no longer holds me in high esteem, that my, my station of peace is broken. That is incredibly wrong. That is the antithesis of what the scripture is saying. He is saying in this new contract, in this new covenant, you are at peace with God right here, right now. Why? Because he's taken away condemnation. You don't have to feel the weight of your sin anymore. It, it, it kills us especially I think sometimes the, the we, we live in a culture at times that doesn't look at justice the way God does. And we're gonna get to that in a second justification in this idea, but God looks at justice in a sense of rest restoration, restorative justice, to bring us back to right. We live in a culture that's retributive justice. You're gonna pay for your wrongs. And because most of us still live in that culture, all we can see is either how we are paying for our wrongs or how we're gonna force somebody else to pay for the wrongs. And we don't live in a sense of restoration. 
where God is saying that the condemnation that should befall those who sin, that should befall those who actively go against the will of God, he says, I'm taking that condemnation away. And I'm gonna bring you to a point of justification. Now let's continue on verse 17. For if by the trespasses of one mad death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive an abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus. He said, listen, sin had an effect. It set up this whole religious system. It set up this whole new covenant idea that God cut covenant between God and himself and God and Abraham, that God set up a new covenant of promise for his people. He literally carved out a group of people in history and said, these are mine. And over time and over time and over time, they could not live up to the covenant. They did everything within their means and within their power, but they could not keep perfectly to the covenant. So God knew he needed to send reprieve. In that reprieve, he sends his son. And in his son, he opens a way so that even though we fail, we don't have to feel the full weight and effect of that sin. Here's, here's the kicker. We say things like this, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And it marks us for our life. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. We hang our head in shame. That is not a biblical statement. You were a sinner, you have been saved by grace, but you don't have to be marked as someone who is caught up in sin. You have a right not only to fight sin, but to defeat it. You have a right in God, not only to come against sin, but to win the battle. And you have a right not to feel the condemnation for anything that happened in your past, even if your past was two seconds ago. That when we ask God for forgiveness, he forgives us. When we do our part to make it right, he lets it go. Now that's different between just consistently going against God's will and against God's will and against God's will. There's a different pattern there, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the free gift that is God's grace. And he moves on to this idea of justification. And he says that we have been justified. It's a big, big statement. We'll get there in just a second by means of the faithful obedience of, of Israel's representative, the Messiah, Jesus, not only has the glory, but all the inheritance of Abraham has been accrued to God's people. All of the evils that were accrued from Adam's disobedience are now undone. See, we have this place that we live in where, where everything that Jesus is setting up, everything the Messiah is setting up, he's saying, listen, all of the glory, all the good nature of God that you can live in is all yours today. And the entirety of the covenant, that second temple religious rule, that Torah, that, that right rule that we're to live by the promises of God that are caught up in the Torah, all of that is yours if you'll accept Jesus. And then the, the, the shame of sin the weight of sin, the effects of sin that even come down the pipe from Adam, they're all undone because of what happened at the cross. Within this large scale, this large scale historical story, there is the Torah, it is in the middle, but it strikes the law of God, but it strikes a negative tone. It's not a positive note at all. God says this law that was set up, the structure that was set up, this religious rigid system was just there to show you you could never make it, you could never pave the way to God based on your own merit. And there's a new exodus that happens in our life. There was an exodus that happened with God's people where they left the bondage of slavery and found their way to the promised land. And in our lives, there is a newfound exodus it's not repeating the, the performance of the old one where we just leave bondage and we just find this happy home. 
but itself, its, its own journey deals with the extra problems that arose because of Israel being under the law, being under the bondage of the law, that you and I come to a place where we are no longer feeling the weight of religious systems, do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs, that we come to a place where we are free like Adam and Eve were to walk with God in the cool of the day. In fact, we know from scripture that at the beginning of time, Adam and Eve were free to walk in the cool of the day with God, that they walked with him arm in arm, that they had a, a real and honest relationship with him. And that's what we're moving back to in this new life in Christ. That we're moving back not only to that place in Genesis before sin ever happened, but we're also moving back to the promises of God that all of the promises of God that he wrote, that he gave to Abraham, that he cut covenant with Abraham about, all of the promises that he shaped around his people are now ours. That we are of that same covenant. And why is that? Because he threw a big word in this passage, that big word justification. Justification is an example, not only of justice, but it's an example of the justice that comes from God. God is the just judge. He is the righteous judge. Again, we, we see justice in a different way than God sees it. We see justice many times in our culture as retributive, that somebody is going to pay for the wrongs, that we have to pay for our wrongs, that in order for real justice to happen, that there must be a payment. And we're constantly fighting that imagery in our head. Yet Jesus and God are more concerned with restorative justice, with restoring things back to right than they are with getting payment. But we live in this, in this foreign idea. So justification is the declaration of God, the just judge, that someone has had their sins forgiven and that they are members of the covenant family, the family of Abraham that you become grafted onto the family. In fact, the Bible says that we are grafted onto the branches of old Israel, that we are grafted onto the branches of the old covenant, that we become part of the initial family that God was setting up, that we become part of the promise that God gave his children. So this is the new narrative. It starts out, you're gonna have peace with God. I'm gonna come to you in flesh and in form, and you will be at peace with God, that while you were dead in your sin, while you were trespassing in sin, that while you couldn't do the right thing even though you wanted to, that I came to you. I came to you and I sacrificed myself. I came to you and I gave of myself. And now I'm writing a new covenant. The law that you understood before, the covenant that you were holding to, that's not even close to the new covenant. The old covenant said you've got to work and you've got to do and you've got to hold religious standards and you've got to be the right kind of person and you've got to cut the right kind of sacrifice. And if you don't do these things, then you're at odds with God and maybe you hit the right festival and it's all erased. But this new covenant says all of the baggage that was brought in from the past sins that bled down through your life, that man couldn't keep the covenant, though he tried and he tried and he tried. I'm gonna erase all of that. I'm gonna do away with the whole system. And now you come to God through Jesus and all of the effects, all of, all of the promises of the old covenant are yours. All of the promises that God gave his children, the, Israels, uh, the Israelites, and all of the promises that God's given throughout scripture, they are yours. 
because you have been grafted into membership. Your sins have been forgiven. This is a distinction I think sometimes it's hard for people to make. We have our get out of hell free card. We're saved. We're going to heaven. We've accepted Jesus and the sacrifice on the cross. We understand the story, how he bled and died for us. We've confessed to him our sin and we've said, please God, come into my heart. And we know we're going to heaven when this life is over. But some of us fail to see that we are in covenant with him now, that now we are in partnership with the God of the universe, that now we link arms with him and we go to work, that now we do what he's called us to do, not because we're good enough, not because we're the smartest guy in the room, not because we've hit all of our religious markers, not because we're on the right side of this aisle or that aisle. We come to him because of what Christ did and fulfill the covenant that he's put in front of us. We fulfill the law, not because, but because our elder brother who was perfect, who was the only Jew to ever fulfill all of the law, that that one gave himself for us so that we could have placement in God. It's a different way of looking at this whole thing called religion because most of us look at religion in this light, that we've got to do the rules, we've got to do the rituals, we've got to check off our box with God, we've got to make sure that we say the right thing and do the right thing. We've gotta make sure that we tithe the way we're supposed to or serve the way that we're supposed to. We've gotta make sure that, that we pray just the right words. And he's saying, no, I didn't call you to any of that. Not that those aren't good practices. Listen, I'm a pastor, I believe in giving. I believe in, in giving your time and your resources and your talents. I believe that you should serve God's people. I believe that you should serve the world around you. I believe in all of these discipled things that God's called us to. They do not prove out the covenant that you have with God. They're an extension of the relationship. They aren't proof to your covenant. So many of us get caught in trying to prove ourselves to God. And then there are others on the other side who are so far into the great goofy grace realm where it's like, well, nothing matters. No, there are still standards that God has us keep. There are still standards that God's want, God wants for our life, but why are they there? They're an outworking of relationship. They're not there because we're trying to prove ourselves. My sons don't have a relationship with their father that when Nash was goofing up and eating too much food and devouring things in the pantry, that I divorced myself from him and said, listen, you are no longer my son because you've, ascend, uh, you've offended my sensibilities. That is way too much beef jerky. But that's how many of us relate to God. The moment we goof up, it's like we think he puts his hand out and says, no, no, you're not mine anymore. You're still covenant. Nash didn't stop being a hearst because he did something I, did, I asked him not to do. He didn't stop being part of the family because I asked him to do something and he did the opposite. But many of us, because we don't understand the context of covenant, this is how we approach it. The moment we screw up, the moment we mess up, the moment we don't hit the target, we go, well, I'm obviously not of God's family. I can't be that close to him. I can't be that part of the family. I can't rely on that promise. I can't rely on his good nature. I can't rely on the covenant. No, no, you're part of the covenant either way. You're part of the covenant regardless. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do the right thing. It doesn't mean we don't have a standard we live up to. It simply means that we and our actions and our finite moments, uh, even of total rebellion, don't change the game of what Jesus already paid for. This word justification, that we would become members of the covenant, that he would draw us into the family and into the family of Abraham. 
This doesn't describe how we get in the family salvation. It simply describes our placement. Let's go back to Romans chapter five and verse 16. Again, the gift is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment that followed one sin brought condemnation, but the gift that followed many trespasses brought justification. One preacher said it like this, justification is just if I'd never justified, just if I'd never, just if I'd never sinned, just if I'd never failed, just as if I'd never done wrong, just as if I'd never sided with God's arch enemy, just as if I'd never done anything against the will of God, that you could read this in saying that this one man's gift, it's not like that sin that you can't get away from, that this one man's gift is a different gift. It's a different bag altogether. That it pulls us not only out of condemnation, the weight of sin that we can't seem to escape, but it brings us to a place where we have been forgiven and we are now part of the family that we have been forgiven and we are now part of the covenant. As I referenced before, there was a covenant that was cut between God and Abraham. And God cut this covenant between Abraham and it was considered a Hittite land contract where they take an animal and they split it down the middle and they let the blood along the borders. And if anyone violates the borders, basically what they're saying is we will do to the other person what we've done to this animal. Except when God cuts the covenant with Abraham, he puts him to sleep and the covenant happens God on God saying, if I violate this covenant, Abraham, you have the right to do to me what I've done to this animal. It's a strict bonding. It's a strict statement. The covenant that we live under, formed on the cross, the blood of Jesus, by no action of our own, that's a promise that God will not violate his covenant because if he does, he has to suffer that cross again. That God will not violate his covenant because if he does, the only place for him is to be strung up as a liar. That we serve a God who when he brings us into covenant, it is a once and for all moment. That is why when Jesus hanging on the cross, hung his head low and died, said, it is finished. It never needs to be repeated. Yet how often in our life do we bring up the thoughts that God, uh, I think I missed it today. God, I'm gonna, have to, I'm gonna have to ask you to go on that cross again. That's really what we're asking when we ask for forgiveness. Most of us, when we ask for forgiveness, we're asking for someone to pay the price over and over and over rather just, than just accepting you're forgiven, rather than just accepting the grace of God, rather than just accepting that he loves you even the way you are. That as Romans chapter five and verse eight said, that even while you were yet sinners, even while you were still stuck in your sin, Christ died for you. Not that he has to do it again and again and again, but the effects of that death play out in our life in perpetuity. It never, the effects never go away. We come to a place in our relationship with him where we understand you are part of the covenant. It's a new declaration of who you are, that you are no longer caught in this idea that you are a sinner saved by grace, but you are caught up. You are caught up in the glorious hope that you are of the covenant family. When, when life happens and it does, that you can say, I don't have to earn this. I don't have to earn my spot. I don't have to earn my place. And you got, I'm part of the covenant. I'm part of the family. That when sickness happens, what does the covenant say? By his stripes, you are healed. That when you are part of the covenant, 
and life gets tight and tough that you can say, no, God, you, you've called me to abundance. Your, your word is very clear that you called me to prosper in all things, that you've called me to be the lender and not the borrower. You've called me to be the head and not the tail, not to be short on anything. That when we come to a place where our relationships are broken, that we can come to Christ and say, no, in you there is reconciliation. Paul puts it this way, the ministry of reconciliation, that we can be brought back together even in the most tense breaking down of a relationship. That every promise in scripture is open to us because we are members of the covenant. In my uh, time as a pastor, I find people walking through most of their life, Romans chapter five. First, are you at peace with God? Do you know him? Have you asked Jesus into your life? Do you know him to the extent you are at peace with God? If not, that's the first step. Let's get you at peace with God then do you understand how deep this relationship is that while you are even sinning, while you are consciously offending God, he still died for you. Have you come to the place that you understand that you are justified? That you are now part of the family? He says you're forgiven. You will find heaven as your home when this life is over. But more than that, more than that, you are part of the family, the covenant family of God. I find this last step, and we'll, we'll explore this even more as, as we move on in the next few weeks, or in the next week, I should say. But I find this to be one of the hardest places for folks to live in. They get to that place where they're at peace with God and, and they move past that. They get to that moment where they understand the sacrifice of Jesus, that while they were yet sinners, Christ died for them, showing his unadulterated love. And they move into a new era of being saved but then the total effect of the covenant, sometimes they have a hard time walking in. The full-on promises of God, what are they for your life? For some of you, maybe it's just John 3, 16. For God so loved Nathan that he gave his son that if Nathan would believe, he'll have everlasting life. Sometimes it, it takes the, the, the simple things to just replace your name with whoever's name is in the covenant contract. I will not break the word I've sworn to my servant, David. You know how often I pray that prayer? I will not break the word, the covenant I've cut with my servant, Nathan. We come to a place where we, we understand the promises of God, as the scripture says, are yes and amen. They're confirmed and they're real. They're honest and they're real. They're ours if we'll go after them. What area of your life needs to be fixed? What covenant promise of God can you apply? What area of, life, of your life is broken? What covenant promise in scripture can you apply today? Hang it like a placard above your bed. Write it on some doorpost somewhere. Speak it over your life every day. You are the redeemed of the Lord. It says, let the, re the redeemed of the Lord say so. I am redeemed. You have every right to say, let the redeemed Put your name in there. Let Nathan say he is redeemed. I am redeemed. You have every right to live in those covenant promises. It's a different way of approaching the scripture. The entirety of the New Testament takes different form when we look at what Paul is saying. And the Old Testament has so much more meat when we understand what Paul is exposing. 
that he is crafting a new narrative and a new story. He's cutting a new covenant that you are part of the covenant family. How do you see yourself?